Good morning and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran and this is the podcast that gets you up to speed every morning with the news that you need to know. It is Monday, 24th of August and I am joined by Annika Smethurst in formerly snowy Canberra. (laughs) It's still minus one here this morning, Jan, but yes, we did have snow at Parliament House on Saturday. It was magical. Did you spot anyone building any snowmen, any carrot noses in sight, or was it just not enough snow for that? No, no, it wasn't even settling on the ground, but if you stood (laughs) there with your hands out, it landed on you and it was so lovely. All right, I'll I'll take it. It's good enough. Today on The Briefing, Tom Tilley and I are going to take a deep dive with a man called Gary Jubelin. He was the detective in the William Tyrrell case and he is fighting to save his reputation. I'd made a commitment to uh, William's family that I would do everything humanly possible to find out what happened to William and I felt like I'd let them down and when I was removed from the investigation I could no longer assist them. That chat with Gary Jubelin coming up in just a second. Before we get to that, let's get to the big stories of the day. Well, coronavirus has ruined many things, and uh, now it's ruining television. Well, some television. Yep, if you're unfamiliar with that sound, it is the sound of Millionaire Hot Seat. That is the second show that has been put on hold because of the same coronavirus outbreak that's postponed The Masked Singer. Yeah, Jan, it was meant to resume filming in Melbourne today, but that's no longer happening because the show shares some of the same facilities with The Masked Singer. This is a wildly infectious virus, and even if you've got the very best protocols in place, you will see positive cases. That's Victorian Premier Dan Andrews there. So far, seven dancers on the set of The Masked Singer have tested positive forcing the entire crew into isolation, including its celebrity judges. Now, The Masked Singer is a very popular show. Um, Last year, I think almost one million people, or one and a half million people actually, tuned in to the final episode, Annika. I don't know if you watched it. Did you, are you a Masked Singer fan? I'm going to have to admit something now. I have never seen this show in my life. Um, Fair enough. I'm one of the people that doesn't watch it, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate how important TV is to some people at the moment. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, the (laughs) fact that it's operating in Melbourne shows that it has been deemed an essential service. The determination's been made around broad sectors uh, that um, are uh, considered essential, and television is one of those. Some people might find that a little bit strange, but given there's not a lot else to do, TV is pretty important. What doesn't make sense to me is why didn't they move it in the same way they've moved the football. Surely we could produce this elsewhere in Australia. Yeah, well, I'm sure they did think of that, but I think given that the celebrity judges had to self-isolate, I don't know if we can beam images directly from people's houses. Meanwhile, uh, Brett Sutton does seem to think that the numbers won't increase hugely on his watch. The numbers are bouncing around a little bit, um, but uh, we're not going to see, you know, 300s and 400s again uh, in Victoria, not under my watch at least. Yeah, 208 new cases yesterday. Some people thought that was a little bit higher than usual. But look, they look at seven-day moving averages and it's down. 218 was the seven-day moving average, down from 229 the day before. So they are heading in the right direction. In Queensland, more than 16,000 COVID tests were carried out in the weekend and some new restrictions were brought back into place. Yeah, authorities are trying to get on top of a cluster at the Brisbane Youth Detention Centre, which has grown to nine after the infection spread to two of the staff's family members. 
including a baby boy. There are now 43 public health alerts across the state's southeast, including restaurants, shopping centres, gyms and supermarkets. We would urge uh, everyone who lives in Brisbane and Ipswich to check that list. Yeah, that was Queensland's Health Minister Stephen Miles there, and the list that he is referring to can be found on the state's government's website. There were 11 cases in Queensland on the weekend, nine on Saturday. Queensland hasn't really seen those numbers in many months, really since the start of the first wave. They're quite strict with their policies and they're very swift in enacting them as well. So I imagine that they they don't want to see a number like they saw on Saturday, which was the nine cases. And given there's an election coming up, Annika, in October, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk will likely want to be getting on top of those numbers. Yeah, a lot of people are making that connection and I don't think that's incorrect. But as you say, they obviously don't want to go the way of Melbourne because they are now restricting gatherings to 10 people for everybody in the southeast. And even if you live up in the north of the state, 30 people is now the maximum for both indoors and outdoors. And the Australian terrorist who killed 51 people at a mosque in Christchurch last year We'll hear from the first of dozens of survivors when his sentencing begins today. All up, 66 people will give victim impact statements over the next four days. Some of them travelled internationally and quarantined for two weeks just to be there when the 29-year-old is sentenced. Yeah, the man could be given life without parole. That is a sentence that's actually never been handed down in New Zealand before. Now, he initially pleaded not guilty and then changed that to a guilty plea to 51 counts of murder, 40 counts of attempted murder and one terror charge. Uh, He's also representing himself in court. And just to give you a sense of uh, how big this is, another seven overflow rooms have been reserved for people who can't actually fit into that one courtroom. And TikTok is suing the US government in a last-ditch effort to stop it from being banned in America next month. Yeah, it seems that this um, TikTok US leaders feud is slightly escalating. Um, it's no secret that, uh, that US leaders, right up to the president, are not fans of TikTok. Here is the US Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. Would you recommend that people download that app on their phones? Only if you want your private information in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, that was Mike Pompeo some weeks ago talking about TikTok, not mincing any words there. Uh, Earlier this month, President Donald Trump declared the company's presence in the US as a national emergency and gave its parent company ByteDance 90 days to sell it. Now, if it doesn't and the court challenge fails, it'll be banned on September 15. TikTok says it's tried to negotiate but has been denied due process and it's got no choice but to take court action. Now, Australia's unlikely to go down this route, but there is a review and the Prime Minister has so far said banning won't happen, but we're still waiting to see which way Australia goes on this. Yeah, that's right. There's um, a select committee on foreign interference through social media happening, which will do exactly what it says on the box. It's a very apt (laughs) name. Um, Right now they're reviewing a number of submissions and uh, they'll put a report forward in 2022. So I guess we've got some time before that happens. All right, thanks, Annika. Up next, I'm joined by Tom and Gary Jubilin. (laughs) 
Hey, Tom here. The disappearance of three-year-old William Tyrrell is one of the most devastating unsolved mysteries in Australian history. Yeah, William went missing in 2014 while playing at his grandmother's house in the New South Wales town of Kendall. And if you're someone who has followed that case, you'll probably know the name Gary Jubelin. Gary Jubelin, the former lead investigator in the William Tyrrell case, has been found guilty of misconduct. Found guilty of unlawfully recording four conversations with a person of interest. The now retired detective says he had an operational need to do so. So as you can hear there, earlier this year, Gary Jubelin, the former detective, was found guilty of unlawfully recording conversations with a suspect in the William Tyrrell case. He was fined $10,000. Now, an appeal is underway, but this whole controversy ended Gary's 34-year career in the police force. He was so prominent during his career that he was a key character in the Underbelly Badness series, which came out in 2012. Mr Pingilli, I'm Detective Jubilin. This is Detective Evers, part of Strike Force Chino investigating the body that was dumped in the Hastings River by men impersonating police. That was Gary Jubilin in the Underbelly series, Badness, there. Since his conviction four months ago, Gary has released a book telling his side of the story. It's called I Catch Killers, The Life and Many Deaths of a Homicide Detective. Gary is with us now. Thanks, guys. Gary, you've written a book about your 34 years on the police force. It's pretty detailed. In some parts, it's it's quite raw. You open up about your personal life, your divorce. Um, why did you decide to write this book? Was it about clearing your name? It was about uh, clearing my name. I hadn't uh, considered uh, writing a book uh, about your life uh, because it go into so much detail. But uh, in light of the way that uh, I left the police and the uh, narrative that was uh, put out about, about myself, I felt the need to... Um, give my side of the story and so people could understand uh, who I was and uh, where I'm coming from. So, Gary, for you, was this about putting the court decision over the recordings in the context of your whole career? Because a lot of people would have just seen you through the prism of those proceedings. I felt that it was necessary for me to um, put my story out and explain what the whole situation was about because it's a complex uh, matter that got me to the point where uh, I was removed from the Tyrrell investigation. And uh, so that's why I decided to do the book. Yeah, we're going to get to that investigation in just a sec, but I kind of want to just get a picture of all of the cases that you've worked on because you've worked on many over your three-decade career and a lot of them have been quite high profile. So there was the William Tyrrell case, there was the Bowerville murders, the Matthew Levinson case. Um, You worked on the death of the model Carolyn Byrne in the 1990s. Looking back at that time, is there a particular case that has stayed with you the most? Every case that you work on and uh, the ones that the public are aware of. There's some of the cases, but there's a lot of other cases that I've worked on that uh, no one's aware of. But you give a little bit of yourself to each case. Um, the Bowerville matter has been, because I've been working on that for uh, almost uh, 25 years, that's certainly uh, one that sticks with me. But every single case you work on uh, leaves an indelible impression on who you are and uh, in your memory. Yeah, Gary, it comes up quite a bit in your book, Attitudes Towards Indigenous Australia. And I guess when you're in the police force, unfortunately, that relationship's extra important because sadly, there's so much engagement between the police and the Aboriginal community. Uh, And we're we're at a time where people are really thinking hard about what's going wrong there, you know, off the back of the Black Lives Matter protests. What's your view about where we're going wrong in the way we relate to Indigenous Australians? 
I it's such a complex issue, so it, it's difficult for me to talk on it in uh, in um, specific detail. But like the Black Lives Matters marches, the most recent ones, the uh, the big ones in the uh, major cities, I marched in that, and uh, wow. I knew my attendance is, is making a statement, an ex police officer. But uh, I'd already marched in Black Lives Matters marches. My stance there and support there was supporting families like the Barrable people that uh, their lives matter too. When their loved ones are murdered, the response should be the same across the board. So I learned so much from the Barrable families. It opened my eyes and, and changed my view on, on the world and uh, Australian society. Um, where I was naive when I went up there, I didn't think that, uh, that racism played a big part. I thought, you know, the Aussie, uh, everyone gets a fair go, mate, type attitude was what prevailed. But when I got up there, I realised that uh, the police response to the murder of three children was completely different because uh, they were Aboriginal uh, children. Well, there was a lot of media focus on the William Tyrrell case. I think that's a case that's sort of seared into our national consciousness. Talk us through what it was like for you to work on that case and then to be taken off it in such dramatic circumstances. I became involved in uh, William's case uh, five months into the investigation uh, when I was uh, put in charge of it. Um, obviously, I was aware of the investigation prior to that that had um, yeah, a lot of attention from the media and I think it got in the conscience of the public because everyone could relate to a three-year-old child playing in a Spider-Man suit at the grandparents' place. And uh, all people understand that the grandparents' place is meant to be a safe place and people could relate to it. And then the the iconic photo of uh, William and uh, just before he's been abducted in his Spider-Man suit, I think it resonated with people. So there was certainly focus and attention on the investigation. I had uh, I'd been investigating homicides for 20 years or so, and uh, I was confident that I had the skill set to uh, take the investigation on. There's a lot, lot of um, pressure associated with high-profile investigations. But uh, I felt I had the skill set and uh, to lead an investigation of that nature. And I certainly went as hard as I could. And I led the investigation for four years. When I was taken off it, I was disappointed because I'd made a commitment to uh, William's family, uh, foster and biological, that I would do everything humanly possible to find out what happened to William. And I felt like I'd let them down. And when I was removed from the investigation, I could no longer assist them. Obviously, the investigation is still being conducted. I'm not saying that an investigation can't be conducted in my absence. There's a, a lot of hard, dedicated and good officers uh, working on the investigation. But my frustration was in the circumstances, the dramatic way I was removed, where I wasn't even um, offered the opportunity to do a, a formal handover to any police officer working on the investigation, which any fair-minded person would say is ludicrous, and uh, I 100% agree. Mm, you call it a witch hunt in your book, the charges uh, against you over the recordings in the William Tyrrell case. You say that the police didn't have to charge you over these recordings. Why do you think they came after you? My view on that, there was um, a, an opportunity, I think certain people saw, to um, bring me down a peg or two, um, why? Well, that's for speculation, why, why someone would want to do that. But I think they overreacted. I haven't seen anyone treated the way I was treated in the dramatic way that I was removed from the William Tyrrell investigation, all other investigations, and uh, and basically sidelined. And uh, there are other ways this could have been dealt with. And uh, it could have been uh, an internal investigation. 
I still surprised that I was charged in regards to the the offences. If I was leading the investigation, in my opinion, there wouldn't have been any charges laid. You've also said that um, the illegal recording conviction has left a scar on your career. And you said that you'd rather go to jail than pay the 10K fine, um, which is ultimately what you got. I know that there is an appeal in the works. But you also have a podcast where you joke about it uh, with your former colleagues. Uh, Let's have a listen to a little bit of that. Do you agree that this conversation is going to be recorded? (laughs) Well, for once least I'll know about it, Gary, but yes. Don't bring up the past, Jason. (laughs) You do give me permission to record this, don't you? In light of recent events. (laughs) Could you say it loud and clear? Yes. So I guess you can sort of take the piss out of yourself a little bit on on your podcast. And in the scheme, I guess, of the corruption that you saw over the years, of all of the horror that you were exposed to in, in your 34 years on the force, how much is this a burden to you um, comparative to what you might have experienced? Look, it's when it's all said and done, and having worked in the field that I, I've worked in homicide, like, okay, so I've been charged or I've lost my job. It pales into insignificance compared to what the families have gone through, the families that I've been dealing with throughout my career. So that puts it in perspective. In terms of taking the piss out of myself, well, yeah, I have said publicly why I recorded the conversations. Making a joke of it on my podcast and that is my way of dealing with it. I can't walk around with my head held down. I've got to say, okay, I own it. This is what I did. And it's probably a bit of the Australian culture of, of taking the piss out of your mates or, or out of yourself. And uh, I think that's the way I, I'm dealing with it. Yeah, I could either be broken or uh, adopt the attitude that I get on with life and uh, I've taken that attitude. Gary, do you think you know what happened to William and do you think the case will ever be solved? What I've learned on working on investigations, I've worked on a lot of tough ones, that if you ever get to the point where you think it's not going to be solved, you shouldn't be working on the investigation. So in answer to will it be solved, you just can't give up hope. In regards to knowing what's happened, I can't say I know this happened. But what I can do based on uh, my experience as a homicide detective and and the facts that I know, that, yeah, I've got some what I would call case theories, and bearing in mind they're just theories, but uh, overlaid with uh, bits and pieces of evidence. But I'm very mindful William's case is still before the coroner. And uh, the coroner's, you know, making the inquiry into it and hopefully that will provide answers. So, um, yeah, I can't give you specific details, but obviously as a, a detective I've got thoughts on what may or may not have happened to, to William, but that's at this stage a matter for the coroner to determine. That was Gary Jubilin, former detective with the New South Wales Police. Uh, a fascinating story. Um, you can read his book, I Catch Killers, The Life and Many Deaths of a Homicide Detective. It's been published by... Harper Collins and both Jan and I have read it. It's quite a fascinating read, isn't it, Jan? Yeah, it is a pretty fascinating read. And look, if you are someone that is into true crime, you sort of can't get truer than this. Uh, detective reflecting on a three-decade career and some of the stories you'll know, perhaps, because they're quite high profile and uh, others are a little bit more intimate and raw. So if that's your thing, pick it up. All right, tomorrow on the podcast. Post-pandemic cultural shifts from what you wear to how your home will look. We're going to take a look at how the pandemic is changing life around us. That is tomorrow. Uh, If you haven't subscribed to the potty already, do so. Give us a like, give us a share, tell your mates, find us on social media, take a photo of yourself, listen into it and share it. We'd love to hear from you. 
Catch you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.